without questioning, you can never truly ever know anything. Questioning is necessary to think. Everything should be questioned. Every single thing you can imagine ought to be questioned and ought to be questioned with sincerity and earnestness and a depth of, of passion where you're trying to ascend and find the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what you believe. Welcome to the QR Lab. My name's Kuldeep Tagore, and I'm here with my main man, Amr Zeki. How are you doing today, buddy? Could be worse. It always could be. We're here <laughs> in the lab because this is a place of experimentation, throwing ideas out. We are trying to QR, question reality. We're on a quest. And today our quest brings us to a question about something actually, uh, why don't we have you read? Yeah, so... Just the other day was reflecting on what is thinking involved, you know, the, the whole process of thinking. And what I realized at the conclusion of, of my writing is that thinking often has to do with trying to solve a problem, right? You're trying to understand something. You're trying to solve a problem. You're trying to come up with a solution. Um, there's many domains to this. And what I realized is that when you do focus on a problem and you come up with, say, a single solution, you actually don't see the all the consequences and the network of events or activities that are related to that solution. So you enter this kind of cloud of uncertainty, this ecosystem of solutions and problems that are all interconnected to one another, some that you're aware of, a minority, most of which you're not aware of, and the ultimate downstream consequences of what happens with your solution is almost completely invisible to you. So the notion of a utopia, the notion of of this kind of almost you know arrogant, uh, feeling that you have a solution to a problem um, uh, is is basically an illusion. So I can start with a, a brief excerpt. Shall I do that? Sounds good. So this is just in the middle. I think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is just in the middle of the uh, writing. Thinking requires an element of self-restraint. Many people are impulsive and reactive. This behavior can be harmful and subvert, subvert the spirit and purpose of proper thinking. While it is hard for most people to accept, effective thinking takes time and can be exhausting. Also, deep thinking requires something else, solitude, and a space that is free of any and all distractions. Another aspect of thinking, especially when dealing with tactics and strategy, is our blind spots. An ability to see the problem from many different angles is essential. We are most often blind to the full scope of the problem, its many tendrils, how it relates to other problems or possible solutions, which themselves can create other problems, and how any given solution may be part of a much larger set of solutions of which it may not be the most optimal solution. The potential complexity is underappreciated, if not utterly breathtaking in its span and scope. <clears throat> a lot of questions there. <clears throat> well, that's why we're here, right? We're here to question. So, I, I, you know, just in kind of thinking about this, you almost have to you have to employ the very thing that we're talking about, and even in, in able to even answer this question. So, and, and let's just go to something a little bit more basic. Let's think about how let's just say a fox outsmarts the hen house. That's a problem. They have to approach it. So, is there thinking there or? Like just at a very simple level, we're just talking about you know, an animal for example, not even, you know, 
higher level structure. Is there a difference between the thinking that a fox would employ to outsmart the hen house versus the thinking we would use to solve a more complex, what we would consider to be a more complex problem in our in our human world? Mm, that's that's actually a very interesting uh, question you're raising. I really didn't think about it, um, but I do start. One way to answer it is um, <clears throat> there's basically maybe four different kinds of thinking analytical, critical, creative, and intuitive thinking. Perhaps the animal is using instinctive or intuitive thinking, which is a template that they're born with as part of their natural state, and they have a proclivity, right, in their essence or in their being to go and hunt and get food, and that's part of basically their nature, however you want to explain it. I don't think, although animals do problem solve, right, there is definite evidence of pigeons being, you know, doing specific activities, solving problems. There's monkeys that, you know, take a, a rock and break the, the coconut in order to get the, the you know, the, the juice. There are animals that have been documented in nature to actually use tools to solve problems, without a doubt. So that perhaps that does require an element of thinking, but I think the fox going into the hen house may be more instinctive it would be my sense because it still requires some degree of creativity, perhaps. Yes, sure. And so you yeah. have to use your senses. You must be able to sense and understand the environment. You must be able to understand, therefore, the problem. And you also have to be able to kind of look into maybe the unforeseen. If you're the fox, who knows about the, the limitations and capabilities and thinking regarding the fox? But still, the fox has to take into account all of these things and it must take into account the science to a certain degree even though it may not inherently understand science the way maybe perhaps a human would, they have to still take that into account, the reality of this situation, <clears throat> that if I, if I don't do this correctly, I could be in trouble with the farmer, right? If I get caught in, in here, and then what happens to me then? Mm. I, I don't, who knows how far they go? So yeah. I, yeah, I, was just, I was curious about that. The other, the other thing in the writing I thought that was um, kind of interesting commentary was... Um, about blind spots and that we have to approach things from angles. But I, I would propose that maybe it's not that we must see, because that almost places, you know, us in the center looking outside at the problem. Whereas I think maybe the problem is at the center and we have to reorient ourselves 360 degrees around the problem, fully encompass and understand it. I think maybe that's something we, maybe tend not to do. We tend to just approach something from our angle. We're seeing it, we're seeing the problem from our angle and how it is versus un trying to look at and encompass the, in lo looking, imagine the problem as something in the center and you're having to walk around this. In <laughs> okay, so yeah, I wish we had some graph. Shoot, put it up there. Let's put it up on the video. Well, I can, I can send a screenshot of it and you can yeah, take it. But you definitely should. Well, I think what you're referring to is this little picture, the diagram that I drew, which is kind of supporting what you're saying, that... I call it problem B, and it's in the center. And you're trying to wrap your mind around that problem, right? But the interesting thing is that the solutions you come up with have downstream other problems that they create and other solutions that they might lead to that are all networked and interrelated potentially. And the challenge is the solution you come up with may be great for this moment in time, may be great for this community, may be great for this decade, but you have no idea of the unintended consequences it will have good and bad down the because you don't see the full scope of reality. Imagine Oppenheimer working on there you go. the nuclear bomb or trying any to solve any this problem. Right. But also fully aware, right? As he quotes the Bhagavad Gita, now 
That's I right. have become the destroyer. That's right. He knew you know? it. Yeah, he knew it. Yeah, because it's obvious. But I mean, there's things less obvious than that. Like, let's say, for example, let's say you're an engineer and you're developing a, a certain product and it turns out that that's great for the 1950s, but it, the material you used to, to oil the machine is a carcinogen that comes out five, 10 years later. And after 10,000 people die, then you have to go back and say, why did we pick this particular chemical? Oh, we just did it because the chemist says it works for this metallic part of it so that it doesn't grind on itself and you know develop heat and friction, et cetera. I'm just making it up, right? But the question is, did they think about the consequences and how was that chemical or oil studied to what extent regarding its safety? How much of it leaks out so that when, it, when a mom is using it in her kitchen, doesn't expose herself and all her children to this particular compound. So, and I actually write about this as well, which is there is a limit in space and time to how deeply you can think about problems because it, it no longer becomes feasible. You can't build a civilization where you study things to such a degree, you think so deeply about them that you fully understand them, you run out of time, right? So th there is an inherent paradox between technological civilizational building and the solitude and the focused thinking you need to have when you enter this, this ecosystem and this cloud of uncertainty that has a complex connection of problems and solutions that actually pertain to your specific problem. So just being aware of the yoke of, of what the, the scope of the issue is should give you some humility and some, I think, framework upon which to, to work so that you're both reasonably efficient and can solve the problem, but you're also doing things in a manner that's not going to cause unintended consequences, that you at least try to think about it in the 360-degree fashion, even if you don't see all the angles. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you described as the uh, downstream effects, the, the, yeah. the consequences. You, you, know, you find a solution to a problem, but then this ultimately has now created three, four other problems that may not manifest for, for, for some period. They of, may be completely invisible to you. Completely invisible yeah. while you're coming up with the solution. Right. But now you have to deal with these consequences. Um, there's an inherent opposition to this spirit of trying to continue to develop the problem. There's an opposition, and that opposition is, I can't be wrong because of our inherent biases. Ego. I uh, Let's just say I'm an academician who has spent my 30 years coming up with the data on a particular subject, and I've come to my various conclusions, I've come to my various findings, and then all of a sudden, all of these, you know, proposed ideas emerging data emerging yeah. data are, are creating other issues yeah but there, there there is in human nature a desire to say well i don't really want to look at this i want to focus on this i'm, yeah. I'm speaking specifically i mean if we can get a little uh, out there for a moment there's a netflix series uh, graham hancock called ancient apocalypse and throughout the series it's fascinating i, I don't think this series could have been published maybe a, a decade or two decades ago and it but it's coming out now because much of what he has the questions he was willing to ask and and was shut down by conventional archaeological um you know mainstream ideas it was completely shut down with the idea that there could be civilized advanced civilizations in the in the ice age period which which is just not an acceptable yeah. it's not an acceptable um uh, uh 
a theory, yeah. according to a lot of archaeologists, because yeah. it uh, it undoes a lot of what they have yeah. already established. Yeah, that's a that to me is a problem. Well, well, it's <laughs> in and of it itself, is a, it is a problem, but it, it also takes time because you know Kuhn's book on scientific revolutions and how paradigms and science they, they take time to change, but when they do change, it is a revolution, and that happens exactly by the effect you described. This kind of slow trickle. Of emerging data that in the beginning is heavily resisted and derided by the dissent. by the mainstream scientific community, and there's many reasons for that. There's so e we need dissent. You can't help but have it in the in the process of being a human being on planet Earth. In fact, it's the what's great about science. Not that science is the end all be all, but it has a spirit of inquiry and a freedom that is really being endangered, is increasingly endangered because, you know, people want to shut down. How many Nobel Prize winners were derided and laughed at and and dismissed who eventually got it? The guy who invented the magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, the the, the uh, Australian or New Zealander uh, physician who discovered H. pylori. H. pylori is my one I there, was thinking. I mean, yeah. there are numerous people who, who um, you know, and some who actually died and, and got the Nobel Prize after they died, um, like the guy who discovered dendritic cells. So, you know, there's always going to be resistance to ideas outside of the uh, prevailing paradigm, but people have to have courage. So a good scientist to me is a courageous person that is putting out ideas that have some plausible argument and foundation that can be disseminated for people to discuss. Now, you and I have had other podcasts where we talk about how to you know, wrangle with ideas, what is effective speech, and and how do you uh, present information, underlying premises, right? We talked about some of these. So let's say somebody says there's some data emerging that it almost sounds outrageous, right? Like like the Earth is actually the center, and the, the sun is rotating around the Earth. It's actually geocentric, and we had it all wrong because experiments were misinterpreted, and there's a level of mendacity involved in science. Holy moly, are you kidding me? Now, that's outrageous as far as we're concerned now. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just using it as an example. Sure. But let's say, as outrageous as that is to us now, that we 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 used to be geocentric, and then we became heliocentric with Copernicus, you know, and Kepler, and now we're getting we go back to geocentric again. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm saying as an example. Right now, you look at this, you're like that is ludicrous. But what happens again as an example, if emerging data starts to show that in fact that is true? Perhaps a reinterpretation well, of old experiments. I would say experiments. we have to shut it down. Right. We can't allow that. <laughs> right. How dare you question my thinking? Well, the spirit. <laughs> Everybody well, knows. Don't right. be silly, right? Yeah, that, that, that the, stuff, ha that's, that is poison to the very exactly. spirit of discovery, of, in, of, of, in, of inquisition. I would say that, and part of what I write about is this: the spirit of open-mindedness. A good philosopher or scientist who's interested, not in knowing just how, but also interested in truth, has to be willing to consider any idea, no matter how far-fetched it initially seems. Because we have numerous examples of crazy ideas that ended up being true. Even Einstein, look at Einstein. Okay, I'll give you two examples. Newton was laughed at by the Royal Society. They said, they said, you, what is this thing you call gravity? You're appealing to magic. They literally called Newton's formula on gravity and his use of the word gravity, which he basically invented the word gravity, they said, you have no description here. You're calling some unseen force gravity. You're appealing to magic. You know, it, it's they laughed at him. Einstein, okay? He said the speed of light is constant. 
and and things when they go at the speed of light, their mass and their length will change because the speed of light basically takes precedence. That's fixed and everything else has to change, hence the theory of relativity. People thought it was nuts. Quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics basically says no more, there's no such thing as particles anymore. We literally do not understand what a particle is because of the substructure, things come into being once they're measured, once they're existence. In fact, even Warner um, Heisenberg or perhaps with Schrodinger said, he said basically in the quantum mechanical description, there is no such thing as particles that exist. They are somewhere between existence and non-existence. And that potential exists until we then observe it and look at it and measure it becomes something. What's interesting about that, as Wolfgang Smith has written about in his book Science and Myth, is that's no different than Aristotle's potentiae, the essence and the being of things. So it's almost like quantum mechanics has brought us back to a metaphysics that you are forced to contend with. And I think a lot of physicists say, we don't understand quantum mechanics because they can't wrap their mind around the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. Right. Will they ever be able to, is the question. Like, where, where, where are we limited in terms of our understanding of, um, you know... This gets back the, to the yeah, problem. Yeah. This gets back to the fog of uncertainty. And, and, I mean, when you enter a domain of thought and you are imposing your mental picture on what you think reality is, take pause and caution about what you're calling a law, what you're calling a principle... Because that very well may not only be wrong, it will change. Theories change over time. Over decades and hundreds of years, they're being modified, they're being changed. And if we look back to theories in the past, we would, some of them we'd laugh at. Others of them are like, yeah, this is still true. So the problem that the human being has is he's faced with a level of mystery and uncertainty that is so profound that to boil it down and simply say science is going to solve that problem is a level of arrogance that is breathtaking. Science is fantastic. It uses technology, airplanes, boats, iPhones, satellites, but there's a limit to the questions that it can answer. And that's why we need things like philosophy and theolo theological understanding and, and, and understanding aesthetics and, and so many other elements to being that are non-quantitative. They're qualitative. You, you cannot describe them with equations. Okay, write me an equation for the love that you feel for your child. No such thing. Because impossible. It's impossible because that's a that's an issue of quality. It's an issue of being. Those things are not amenable to the reductionist equations that we used to describe the physical world. Describe to me how you feel when you are on vacation, sitting at a beach, drinking a pina colada, totally relaxed, listening to the beautiful ocean waves, and you fall asleep utterly in peace. Write me a formula for that. Never. No such thing. And there's no there's no formula. There's no way we can quantitate um, individual experiences. Exactly. So that means there's there's a quality to experience, which has to do with your being and, and it's consciousness. Unique. It's a hundred percent unique. And there's to things, the individual, right? And there's things that can be boiled and reduced and analyzed to equations and quantities. And so those two worlds exist. And the problem with modern science is it has completely excluded the qualitative aspect of life. And and what they try to do sometimes is take qualities and try to quantify them, which is okay. You can try and do that. Social sciences do that. Some basic Correct. sciences do that. I was going to say psychology. Yeah, like they'll, they'll take a histology of your tissue, and they'll say, oh, we're going to count how many cells are positive for, for this protein, and then we're going to divide it by the total number of cells. So you take an image, 
that's qualitative and you quantify it by a certain rule. That's okay. But it's not the essence of the tissue or the essence of the organ or the essence of its physiology. That's, it's almost like the functioning of a tissue or organ or an organism, the totality of that is greater than the sum of the parts. Because if I took right now a rabbit and I dissected it down to its atoms and I tried to assemble the rabbit back from atoms to molecules to cells to tissues to its function, I would not be able to. Because I don't fully understand the complexity of that organism, I could never do it. There's no computer in existence. That gives me, so therefore, nature the, trumps you every time. Every in that, time in so, that ability of creation. Exactly. So there is there is a level of functionality that is holistic and integrated that is beyond quantity. That's what science doesn't understand. Very good. Science is limited. Uh, it's kind of like the rungs of a ladder. You know, it, it's science is really kind of a tool. For yes. us to try to get to the answer, which is up there, science That's is right. not the answer. It is correct. It, 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 they're, they're it's a tools. tool. Right. Even philosophy has limits. Philosophy doesn't get into quantities. In fact, you cannot even use equations in philosophy. Philosophy is purely abstract and conceptual. So, in order to, as a human being, in order to wrap your mind around how complex reality is, you have to be a scientist, you have to be a philosopher, you have to be a theologian. You have to have psychic understanding, a spiritual understanding, and you have to be an aesthetics, meaning an aestheticist, meaning somebody who understands the artistic realm, right? So those five domains of mental development are what's necessary for, I think, a more fully developed human cognition. Unfortunately, look at our education. Look at even the PhDs we're giving. All these other domains are basically wiped out. The only thing that science is God. And look, I'm telling you as a scientist, Science, science, I love science. I do it every day, but I understand its limitations. And I try to develop other aspects in my life so that I can elevate myself above physicality. Uh, you know, just kind of veering off here a little bit, you know how I like to do that. I, I feel like there are forces that are pushing against this type of discovery that we're trying to foster here on, on the QR lab. Right. For example, I do think that I like how you said theology, but there is a way that religion is practiced that does not encourage the asking of questions. Religion does not. Yeah. Religion says, no, this is the answer. We're done here. There, this is, you know, for example, in the New Testament, I am the way, the light, this is it. This, oh, okay, well, good. You know, I don't need to ask any more questions. I'm not saying yeah. that, that the texts are necessarily saying that, but what right. they are saying is the answer is here. Yeah. Don't you don't need to look any further. The answer is here. That spirit is actually, I think, antithetical to what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I think there there are people who are priests or they're scholars that are promoting religion who are actually in that third domain of theology, but they're not into philosophy or science, so they're limited. So that's what I'm. That's exactly what I'm talking well, about. Because well, wouldn't it be heresy? Can you imagine like a mullah discussing philosophy in this manner? I think these people or science in this manner, where it would completely question what is perhaps in their in in their religious. Actually, they would be trumped by the Quran itself, because the Quran says things like, "This book, this revelation, is for those who ponder, those who use their reason. Do you not see my signs? Do you not ponder over them?" That's literally in the Quran. So the Quran is an appeal to rationality. However, there would be there would be periods where you would come up against things in the Quran that would contradict the Quran. Perhaps. Well, would that be allowed, well, 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 or is that yes, going to be considered heresy? I, no, I think no human being can say this is heresy. This is not heresy. 
You can claim that. Ultimately, well, the, bu- the, the book is very clear on what apostasy is. Well, ultimately, it's between you and God. The, but the, the spirit of it is this. Every human being, in order to rise up, has to have questions about everything, even the most fundamental thing that you're being asked to believe ought to be questioned. Why? Because the process of questioning is the rite and the ritual of the purification of the human heart as you enter the domain of truth. Without questioning, you can never truly ever know anything. Questioning is necessary to think. Everything should be questioned. Every single thing you can imagine ought to be questioned and ought to be questioned with sincerity and earnestness and a depth of of passion where you're trying to ascend and find the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what you believe. But, you know, in our society, how many times have you, and I could go back probably to my childhood, and I know you could go back to your childhood, where you asked questions that were frequently where you were told, don't ask those questions, or, well, or you're, yeah. you're, you're, you, you, you're kind of told not to yeah, I mean, think my, like this. My, you're you're, you're yeah. asking, you're, it's, does, we don't necessarily encourage, and in That's fact, true. I think in our um, religion... Our, our, our social religion construct, which is magnificent in terms of how it keeps a structure to our society in some ways, or to our community, to our to our household, um, but it also does do a fair bit of crushing but, of the but but think, human think about it. Of, it's the people, not necessarily your the religion. It's because your adults. You're I mean, sa- you're saying that it's the people, and I would agree with it. However, they are backed by words that are fairly clear. I think that's debatable, but in my no, but that's why we're here. We're we're here to have that debate. I mean, when I was a child, because you can't just say, "Oh, well, people are just like this." They, what is it specifically about religion, right? But, but you know, I think to your point, and forgive me for rambling here a little bit, but to your point, in science, you see the same sort of religious fanaticism. Scientism, scientism, Scientism. that's what it's called. Yeah, you see the same sort of thing where it's like, "Oh no, we're not going to ask those kind of questions because we've already established." Oh, we're not going to tackle consciousness. That, that's that's beyond what we can. now there is rational limits right you can say we don't have the tools I accept that but to not even allow the question to be asked is a kind of scientistic zealous religious like behavior that scientists are are manifesting I, I mean I do think that if you get too out into the into the weeds if you will you you're not able to do anything imagine imagine there's a at, limit there's a limit. imagine yes. at your imagine in, in your lab if you were in your real lab, not this lab here that you have, but in your real lab, like if you were to try to start introducing, you know, these more lofty concepts into the day-to-day discussion, you you may not get anything done that day, no, no, right? No, no, you, you can't. You, you, you have to be mechanistic well, to a certain science, degree in order to just yeah. get the work done. Well, well science, science is, is a physical tool. That's all it is. So you have to understand the limits of your tools. Like if I have a screwdriver, there's only a certain number of things I can do with a screwdriver. If I have a drill, there's a limit to what I can do with a drill. You cannot ask questions that are not experimentally approachable with the tools that you have. Therefore, you don't ask those questions. And and the I think the the the, the sci- scientistic belief that any question, including values and morals and philosophy, things that enter quality and being, can be addressed by science, is a mass delusion. In fact, it, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of insanity, and this is why I like the work in part 
of of Wolfgang Smith because he articulates very clearly the differences across and the domains and the delimitations of these different um, uh, you know uh, fields of thought. Science is this; it is not that. Metaphysics is this; it is not that. And and one of the reasons I, I find him attractive, maybe not everything he says or, or believes, is because many of my own sort of independent struggles and my own independent thoughts on the matter, I've come up to with, with my own conclusions that are quite similar to his. And I'm reading him, I'm like, okay, maybe my thoughts aren't totally crazy and that far off. There, there's something um, unifying different independent thinkers across space and time who are seeing and saying the same thing. You're talking about a man who's had, uh, by the way, Wolfgang Smith um, is, what, what is he, 90 He's years old? He's 93 or 94, right. yeah. Right, and he um, uh, you know, did travel to India, and he did, ex- I, I don't want to say experiment with, but he, he delved into spirituality. Spirituality is a realm that allows us to ask questions. Religion is a domain where the answers are ba- essentially provided to you, and now, what you're saying is that within that domain, you can still ask many questions. You don't feel you don't... Ha- you're given answers. You're given very concrete things. But, you, but you know. yeah, the questions will never end. And, and Wolfgang Smith is actually a trained physicist, mathematician, and philosopher. He worked as a mathematical professor. He solved the rocket re-entry problem. Uh, and he, he's well-established in the field. He's written numerous books... He does say some controversial things. I've actually, I've been looking at his stuff carefully, and I've been studying his thoughts, and I've been writing it in my own journal to dissect and and look at his the way his conception and relate it to what I've conceived to see if there's any parallels. It's been quite instructive. I mean, this is what people do. I mean, this activity is what people ought to do when they go to college, right? You find somebody who has a thought about something. You start to take it apart. You start to look at it 360 degrees. You start to incorporate it into your own, you know, theoretical framework about what reality is. And that elevates you because it allows you to see things your consciousness may have not perceived or seen before. It's even beyond thinking because it involves your heart. It involves a certain kind of feeling. Your being, your essence, your soul is in all this. Do you think that I think we are seeing a what we're seeing is a marginalization of religion in a way, and, and let, me, let me explain that to a certain degree. I think what you're seeing now is people who are remaining um, devout in their beliefs to their espoused religion, they, they are becoming more and more polarized, and then you're seeing the rise of people who, who do not want to necessarily commit to a religion. And they might say something, well, I was raised in a you know, Christian tradition, but I consider myself more spiritual. And you, you'll see, I mean, let's just go on Apple Podcasts and, and look that up. How many, how many podcasts there are on this concept of spirituality and, and looking more into, it seems that they're looking more to the East, just because I think the traditions of the East, the religious traditions of the East are much more um, expansive in regards to how they approach this topic. There, there's less of a, there's, less of a commitment to the written word and there's more of a commitment to the the sound of music the eloquence of the of the philosophy or a concept right um in 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 uh you know certain traditions they essentially just sit and sing uh, you'll see this a lot in in indian uh, uh religious traditions where the sermon 
is all sung. The entire sermon is sung for two and a half, three hours. And it allows for a meditative state. People can relax, even if they don't necessarily understand the words. Even if the uh, the spiritual leader is is trying to explain them, they, they may still be beyond them. But what they can relate to is that moment of peace and tranquility in the simple you know for now i'm kind of jumping a little bit but like even in the in the the tone and the hum of the of the word om mm-hmm. you know this yeah. this this idea that do we need all these words or is this something that can be experienced yeah. in in other ways absolutely that reminds me actually what you're saying of um it's really a mystical practice, and, and the Sufis in Islam do that. I mean, they sit in circles and they rock back and forth. What, and they, what are they doing? Th- th- that's the same thing. So it's it's. How does science explain this? <laughs> it is. It is. That's why it's called mystical because, I mean, which I, which I think is terrible to call it mystical. No, no, I, it, it's I don't almost think like so. Well, if it feels like redu- it feels like in a way reductive to call it that way. Kierkegaard said, "Do not label me for in labeling me or negating yeah. <laughs> me." That is true, but I, you know, you have to define it. I guess what mystical is is they are internal subjective experiences that you have that are truly ineffable. You cannot articulate the totality of what you experience, right? People who do ayahuasca and all these things, they hallucinate certain things that to them, they'll come out and say, that was more real than me talking to you right now. People will, will literally say that. And to them, it's as real as this table that I just knocked on. Yeah, It's like they come out completely transformed. Why? They had an inner experience that is a quality that cannot be boiled down. It cannot be recorded. It cannot be photographed. It cannot be typed up as a computer algorithm. It is totally ineffable. But it's enhanced them in some way, but which is them, remarkable. But if to you them, think about it. That's right. To them, it is a truth that they have experienced that they cannot deny. It can change their behavior. It can change the outcome of their life. Everything. People have these experiences. Right. Yes, some of the time it's done through, through psychedelics, but also, you know, in the East, it's been practiced completely. Outside of psychedelics. Well, I, I consider the East, like India, that whole region, is probably the pinnacle of human psychic and meditative and mystical practice. It's it's the pinnacle. It's it's above the Abrahamic religions. And and I think Sufism and in Islam and in also in the Christian religions, I mean, even in Judaism, they do have mystical practices. They are touching upon practices that the East has done for thousands of years. They're not trying to copy them, but what happens is, even in the Abrahamic traditions where you have, like you said, textual written words and laws and things that are codified, the do's and don'ts, when people have an inner experience, when people have an inner experience where they are somehow perceiving the the other world, at least in their in their consciousness, right, they start moving into these mystical practices because it enhances those experiences. So it, you cannot get away from the mystical parts of life because that actually is touching upon being and quality. It's touching upon something that cannot, it's irreducible. End of story. That's the problem. So, you know, coming back to sort of the theme of this podcast today, which is something I'm sure we're going to come back to, but in regards to problem solving, solutions, thinking through things, we have to say, if you come to a certain point where all the science, all the reading, all the knowledge you've accumulated isn't solving your problem, remember that there are other facets as you so beautifully articulated here. Yeah. Take a moment. 
Go sit, enjoy the... Some of the greatest discoveries have occurred to people when they were not in a moment of you know, deep contemplative thought, right? It's, they've come to them in a moment where Archimedes is in the bathroom. Right. <laughs> He's in the bathroom. He's in the tub. Yeah. He's in the tub, you know? Um, and I'm sure yeah. th- uh, Newton sitting under the tree with the apple hitting him on the head. I don't know if this, these are... You know, these may be uh, exaggerated, but I, I, I think the yeah. point—I think it still brings yeah. about t- to the point you are making here, and you've uh, articulated yeah. in your writing—is um, that there we must look at things from from many different angles. Yeah, we have to appreciate that the human being is a complicated creature. I mean, we're not a fox, right? Foxes are great, but we're we seem to be something beyond that. Like a lot of things we do have no thermodynamic um, uh, rationality or, or 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 positive consequence, like. We do a lot of things that biology should have, evolution should have gotten rid of, yet we continue to do them because we are different somehow. So the bottom line is this, as you said, the development of the human being, if it's complete, has to occur over multiple mental domains. And I mentioned what they are. And if you restrict yourself to just theology or just you know aesthetics or just science, you are selling yourself short as a human being because your capacities are greater across multiple domains. And imagine if you had skills in all of them, what you would see about the scope of reality. Mic drop. So let's, um, yeah, I appreciate bada this bing, discussion. Boom. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Until next discussion. time. Until next time. Think about it. Yeah. Let it brew. to emphasize that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely our own, and they do not reflect the official policies or positions of our employers and places of employment or any of their affiliates. Additionally, our discussions on this podcast should not be considered professional advice or endorsements of any particular organizations, products, or individuals. We're here to share our thoughts and stimulate conversation, but we encourage you to do your own research and form your own opinions.